0: Hey, Path 11 Podcast listeners, I was wondering if you have checked out our Patreon page yet. If not, you can go to path11podcast.com and click on the Patreon button, and for just a dollar, one dollar donation, you can have access to some private things that we were putting up on the Patreon page, like my MBT experience that I took in Tennessee with Tom Campbell. I did a, an audio journal for about the four days explaining what had happened to me during my binaural beat set. It was amazing, impacted my life, changed my life, but we are only going to allow our Patreon supporters access to the four days of my journal entry, and it is a food for thought Friday. So that is where you can find it. You can donate just a dollar to listen to it. If you like the content that we have up on Patreon, you can continue to keep your subscription for $1 a month. Otherwise, you can cancel it at any time. So head on over to and click on the button that says Patreon. I have a quick announcement before we get to our guest today on the Path 11 podcast. And I wanted to remind you that you can head on over to our website, path11productions.com, and you're going to see Afterlife Awareness Conference. I'd like you to click on that link. And I want you to know that we now have a membership to the directory of all the videos from this live stream event that we filmed back in November of 2018. There were some amazing speakers at this conference, which include William Buhlmann from the Monroe Institute, Suzanne Northrup and Thomas John, who were amazing psychic mediums. You get a chance to see them reading the audience and the people validating what they were saying. Another one of my favorites was Suzanne Geisman, who is also a medium and intuitive counselor and told a fantastic account and story of a soul that had passed away, but left all of these clues and came back to communicate with people. Um, Monica Williams Murphy, she is a doctor and and had a great presentation about conscious dying in the clinical setting. Terry Daniel and Linda Fitch also had amazing uh, workshops that they presented as well. So I'd like you guys to head on over path11productions.com and click on afterlife conference, check out and see all the videos that we have available to you for this membership that we have going on. And now on to our show. Well, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Stephen Sacalarius, who is going to be talking to us about reincarnation, past lives, and I'm very excited um, to speak with him today because in reading his book, um, it's an ebook, Matthew Franklin Whittier, in his own words, it is pretty fascinating to look at what he documented to be a potential past life that he found out that he was in. So, Stephen, welcome to the Path Eleven Podcast.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Yeah. So I know that you were working on a documentary back, um, gosh, what was it? Back in 1997
1: is when it came out? When I started, yeah, when I started working on it. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. And that documentary was called In Another Life, Reincarnation in America. So I would love to hear a little bit more about how that came to be and maybe where your story began in getting very interested with reincarnation and past lives.
1: Well, um, it goes back to when I was a little bit out of high school and started studying Eastern mysticism. And, um, you know, I went on with that for quite some years. So that's what I understood of reincarnation. I didn't know that anybody was actually researching it. But uh, in 1997, I had my own little video production company, and I had started with photography as a serious hobby and moved into video and television. And I knew that uh, when people took their you know, their ideal of what they wanted to do creatively and turned it into a job to earn money with it, that they tended to lose the creative part of it. And I didn't want to do that. So I said, well, I'll have a a project that goes along parallel with my paid work. And because I studied reincarnation as part of Eastern mysticism, I decided to do this documentary on reincarnation. And I was really I – mean, actually, I woke up one morning and just realized that's what it was going to be about. <laughs> so, we don't <laughs> know what happens at night, who we talk to or who talks to us or, you know, any of those things. It's, people say that you have, you know, meetings and so on. But anyway, I woke up and I knew that was my topic. And that's how it got started. And I developed the website the next year. And things pretty much took off. And I realized that, oh, my gosh, there had been all kinds of research done on that topic, and basically of two types. There's scientific research, and then there's research that I would call, uh, that proves it to a legal standard, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. So Mm. they really kind of run parallel, and they don't talk to each other. And then there's past life therapy, which I also learned about. So there's really three streams that I put together in my documentary, and my, my idea was to do an overview of uh, to kind of take the temperature of America and say, okay, how are people in America finding out about reincarnation? So, you know, I go by method, by method, by method in the documentary. This is how, this is one way people are finding out about it through past life therapy. Another way is through scientific research. Another way is people to research their own cases, like myself.
0: Right. Wonderful. Now, I know that it was broadcast on a PBS affiliate um, in Denver, Colorado, but as our listeners are listening to you describe it, is there still an avenue for people to be able to view this documentary?
1: Sure. It's on YouTube and a couple other venues. Um, They can find it on my website. So if they go to the main page and scroll down a little bit past my books, they will see the links to watch it online.
0: All right, great. Now, reincarnation is like a second language to me, but I don't want to assume that our listeners, although our listeners love all these topics, we may have a listener that um, is very new to what the concept of reincarnation is. So can you kind of talk a little bit and educate our listeners about what Eastern mysticism says about reincarnation? What does it actually mean? Um, So for those who maybe are just hearing this term for the first time.
1: Well, it's a good point, and we have to distinguish between what Eastern mysticism says and what the research is saying and what the New age is saying, because they're not exactly the same. Eastern mysticism says that uh, that the real part of a person is the soul, the bottom, you know line. It would be like the aquifer, a you know, well and the aquifer. you know well, the aquifer is the real person, and the well is, you know all the stuff that's added on top. So uh, they would say that the soul really doesn't reincarnate. the soul just is. Okay? So what actually reincarnates is what's called the subtle body of the astral body, the energy body. Takes on a physical body and drops it. Takes on a physical body and drops it. And in between, it's in the astral realm or the bardo realm, you know, the the other side. And then it takes on another body, comes down, comes into the womb at roughly 21 weeks, according to one authority. Um And, uh, you know, and begins the whole process. So it's a cyclical business like it's a wave. In other words, like everything else is waves. You know, this is also a wave and it's cyclical and there's not, it's not a linear view of life. It's a cyclical or cyclical view of life. So um, then, then you get into why it's done and what is remembered and what isn't and what is, what survives into the next reincarnation and what actually has died you know Uh, and there's my own study uh, informed some of these things in terms of specifically what is it about you that's the same and what has changed you know so there's a lot of implications but basically that's it it's a cyclical process where the energy body takes on or goes into a physical body and then leaves it again and comes back
0: right now, let's go into what you have found with your research. So, um, I liked what you said just there. What parts of us stay the same, and what parts of us do change? What have you found?
1: Well, first off, first off, I want to say that I didn't just find it or imply it. I proved it. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and I, I want to make that really clear. I really you know, I took the best reincarnation cases I'd studied and their methods, and I applied it to myself. so I was I tried to be as rigorous as I could. I tried to shoot down all my own speculations and conclusions you know as best I could you know so I mean what I've got left is pretty solid Um, so what I found was that the emotions are the same we are now all operating on emotions that come from the past we're not operating only on our present life emotions so whatever you react to whatever person whatever situation whatever belief whatever group you encounter you're reacting with all of your past life emotions in in real time This is the first thing I found out. And the past life therapists know this. They call it the affect bridge or the emotion bridge. That's how they get people into a past life. They're saying, you know, going for the emotions. You know, what do you feel? You know, what are you feeling? You know, and and bang, they're in it, you know. So um, the second thing is I found that the higher mind is the same. And this goes along with what I'd learned in Eastern mysticism, which is that what's called the mental body or causal body changes very, very slowly over many incarnations. So chances are if you're looking, I think I'm looking back two incarnations with the one I studied. I think there's one in between I couldn't find. So if it's only been two incarnations, you've basically the same higher mind. And by higher mind I mean your values, the way your mind works, what you think is humorous, you know, uh, your attitudes, that that part of the mind that's not specific to your life experience. So then, in between that is the physical body, which obviously is going to be different, but it's not that different. It's usually about 85 percent similar in all the cases I've seen. Similar look about the person, you know. And would a few, that be
0: would that be if they were male or female, or are you saying pretty much? Percent?
1: Yeah, pretty yeah. much. And what I understand this didn't come out of my study, but what I gather is that most people will go several incarnations in one sex, and then they'll flip over. And okay. go several incarnations in the other. So, at that flip point, you're probably going to look pretty similar. Now, you know, if you get like seven or eight incarnations into your male or female series, you might start looking different at that point. You know, I don't know. This that's conjecture. I mean, I mean that doesn't relate to my findings. Um, and then the uh, then there's the what I would call the physical personality, which is who you your identity your self-image, who you are in this life, meaning, you know, I was born in Long Island, I grew up in Miami, I've spent, you know, time living in the South, and, you know, I had these relationships and this marriage and, you know, whatever, my, my, my world that I associate to. So anytime I look at a ch- table or a chair or any object, I associate with my associations from this life, which is why we don't remember one reason, we don't remember the past life. Even if I'm presented with something about my past life, I associate with what I know from this one. <laughs> so I don't remember it, except when the emotions come through. So if there's strong emotions, if I'm confronted with something, and this happens, I mean, I've documented this in my own case. If I'm confronted with something from my past life and there was very powerful emotion around it, the uh, cognitive memories can leak through in flashes. And those flashes stay exactly the same. They're like, you know split second glimpses and they never change. It's always the same, you know? So, you know, that's, that's what doesn't come through except under certain circumstances.
0: Wow. So what that kind of, that takes my mind to say, well, then is there this imprint on our consciousness? Like if you're saying like the strong emotions are always related um, from past life emotions, then it seems like that there's some sort of, uh, you know, memory that that is held
1: I think there's a lot more memory than people think there is. I yeah. think we're constantly experiencing past life memories and we don't realize it because we think it's all part of this life. But for example, in past life therapy, there's phobias a person's desperately afraid of water and afraid of being caught in a tight space. And there's no reason in this life for that. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So it's so you know, but it makes perfect sense when you find out what happened in the past life. So you're yeah. actually experiencing your past life now, except for that one layer of physical personality, which forms what they call the river of leth or the river of forgetfulness, you know, amnesia. It's basically like we have profound amnesia on that level.
0: And it, the amnesia, I'm thinking, you know, has to happen or else we really wouldn't be able to function fully in this incarnation.
1: Yeah. And I found it tricky, especially what I found is the more I immersed myself, see, I found a great number of uh, pieces of literature that i wrote in my past life like 1500 published pieces i ended up finding so and a lot of this is essays and some of it is uh travelog so it's basically like a public diary so i've got this huge pile of, of uh, writing that i did in my past life so <laughs> you know i in a way i've got past life memory but i have it mostly vicariously i forget where i was going with that <laughs> i was going somewhere with it and i <laughs> lost so maybe you can trigger my memory but
0: yeah no that's fine but I would would really like us now to get into how you began to investigate and research your past life and you ended up you know writing your book about it and documenting it and it's a fascinating story so I'd like you to kind of uh, begin and take our listeners through this journey that you went through
1: oh boy well here we go okay (laughs) okay so um, let's see where do I question is where to pick it up um, in 2003, when I released my documentary, I did a, a print interview, an online interview, you know, where she sent me the questions and I answered the questions and I sent them back. So uh, in the course of that interview, um, I said that, let's see, I've got it I've got it quoted here. This is in uh, fall of 2003. And this, by the way, is preserved on uh, archive.org. And this is important because I'm trying to prove these things, right? So, okay. this printed interview was preserved by the Wayback Machine of archive.org, which means I couldn't have tampered with it. You know, it shows the date it, it, and, and it's there. So, uh, I was asked if I remembered any of my past lives and how they might have influenced my work. And this was my answer I do think that several of my past lives have been very influential in my work. I have, through intuition, glimpses, and educated guesswork, identified a few lives I feel pretty sure of, and a number of others I have hints of. Then I said, I've been a writer, connected, I think, with the romantic poets, for example. Not any of the famous ones as near as I can tell, but I think I knew some of them personally and ascribed to their overall philosophy, for better or worse. So... I had felt that all my life, you know, so uh, it went back to childhood, even when I first encountered some of these romantic poets and had these, you know, very strong feelings about them. Um, and then I forgot about it. Now, I had also had a psychic reading in which uh, with a woman named Patricia Kobler in Atlanta who had told me that she thought I had been a female writer. And if I remember correctly, it was on the West Coast in about 1930, something like that. So that's the one I was looking for. And every once in a while, I get on the Internet and just kind of casually look for, you know, historical female writers, names that I might recognize. And I didn't really hit anything till till finally I hit one, Sarah Orne Jewett, who was kind of toward the later part of the 19th century. Um, and she was connected with the Romantic writers. And I got on the website, and it just – I said, well, I'm not this person, but it seems really familiar. So uh, I had videotaped a fellow named Jeff Keene, who some of your uh, listeners might be familiar with. He has his own reincarnation case uh, as a Civil War general. And uh, he had contacted me when I first started my website. You know, And he came, and I videotaped him. I was the first to ever present him publicly. Um, He went on to become relatively famous in reincarnation circles. But uh, I was friends with him, and I knew that he had a tremendous knack for synchronicity, so that when I was around him, these incredible synchronicities would just happen. And I said, well, maybe he would know why this is significant, why I feel like this is familiar, this website for Sarah Oran Jewett. And your listeners can find it. It's a uh, text project website for Sarah Orange Jewett. Well, he, about half an hour later, and this was, by the way, this was, um, let's see, May of 2005, or late April or early May of 2005. So he shot me back an email maybe half an hour later, and he said, uh, I've got the quote from his email here. So let's see, I tried to do a little preparation here. He says, uh, as if guided, I went to main contents and then to portraits, then to the very bottom name, Matthew Franklin Whittier, clicked on it and said, bingo, looked at the picture and said to myself, he looks a bit like Steve, sent along a file and and so forth and so on. So um, he found it. So then I clicked on that and I looked at it. And what I've got is an etching of a man in like his late 40s or middle 40s, I think it was. And uh, it's. We know that he was friends with Sarah Oranjua because he's there at the bottom of her <laughs> list of social circle. And we know that he was the brother of the famous poet John Greenleaf Whittier. And we know he's an author. And that is all we know about him. And I looked in the eyes of that three-quarter facing portrait and I knew that was me. Bang. You know, a sense of recognition. I said, that's me. And he does look about 85% like me. I've got a comparison picture just like I made for Jeff, you know. Um and that went, it went from there. And then I got uh, a book by John Greenleaf Whittier a, that, like, uh, is not by him. It's his letters. And his official biographer had written a little introduction, which, of course, when they are in the childhood, that's also Matthew's childhood. And some of those things started to seem familiar. And then I got, um, there's only one biography of Matthew Franklin Whittier. It's a student uh, thesis, 1941. And I read that and some of it seemed familiar, some of it didn't, I wasn't sure, but his writings, there were like five samples of his writings, and that was strongly familiar, and one of the first things I knew when when I saw that writing was the feeling that he embedded a great deal of secret autobiography in those stories. They're humorous stories, but he embedded a lot of his own personal history in it as code. When I say code, I don't mean cryptography, I mean, you know, like analogies and, you know, Hidden references and things, and that turned out to be true with Bellzone. but that's how I got started with it. But it, that was 2004, 2005. So, so the next, the next thing I was going to go into there, um, we could talk about the method. But I wanted to take a break for a second, yeah, you know, and give you a chance to give some input. But then there was a whole method as to how I did it.
0: Yeah, I would definitely love to hear the method because I think that's, um, you know, that's be, I think the part where. People are going to want to engage in their own, you know, in thinking about what feels familiar to them in a past life, and then how do I actually apply this method. But I have to say, when I was going through your book, um, one of the things that I found to be pretty striking was the resemblance of the picture. Uh, I mean, you know, as here I was looking at you, and I was looking at the picture, and I was like, wow, there really there really is a resemblance. Like, I'm not just making this up with my eyes. I mean, even the shape of the nose, the spacing of the eyes, I was like, wow.
1: And, and, the, was- and the vibe, too. I mean, you know, you have to look into the soul of a person as much as you can. And, and it's, it's, also, it's also, you know, you can see that, too. And the same with Jeff Keen. Jeff Keen's past life image is even closer than mine. I mean, it's absolutely, uh, pardon the expression, it's a dead ringer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's amazing. But yeah, mine, and they're all like this. This is the thing. When, when When I get into a case that I'm convinced is genuine, not because of that, but because of what I'm going to get into in terms of method, they're all like that. Almost all of them.
0: Yeah. So I think that, you know, definitely let's go into the method because some people might be listening and say, okay, well, what's the big deal? So he was reading stuff and, you know, stuff felt familiar to him. But what does that mean? You know, and how does that actually prove that you were this person in a past life?
1: Well, that's the that's the meat of the thing, and as you know, my book is very long, and I have another sequel on top of it. So, and I'll get into why they're so long in a minute. Part of it is this that I wanted to really prove it, you know, not just, you know, <laughs> just infer it. Now, a lot of people have have done reincarnation comparisons where they rely primarily on synchronicities and coincidences. They say that, uh, you know, I started school on April 11th and this person started school on April 11th. And, you know, I married somebody named Jane and they married somebody named Jane, you know. And there is something to that, but it's not what I call the real evidence. It's kind of the icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when, when you want to look at real evidence, I had two sources. Again, and again the same sources that went into my documentary. There's Dr. Ian Stevenson's work and his colleagues who studied children, young children, who remembered a lot of specific details about their past life without any re- way of having known it. Now, there's, there's an objection, a skeptical objection called cryptomnesia, which means false memories. And that means that, say, I, you know, I ha- I'm under hypnosis, for example, and I'm remembering a life about the 1600s and being in a war. But I watched them, you know, then then somebody realizes, oh, I, I watched a movie about that 10 years ago. You know, the same thing. And some of the things that were in the movies were coming up in the regression. And, you know, I mean, there's there's cases like that where there's a big question thrown around it because they could have gotten it from a book or they could have gotten it from a movie. See? So if you're really serious about proving the past life, you've got to get around that objection. You've got to defeat it. So Dr. Stevenson cut out the whole business. He cut out hypnosis for the most part, although he used it some, which I personally know because I've corresponded with him. Um, he was supposed to be in my documentary, by the way, and he pulled out. <laughs> so That's another story. Um, I think he pulled out because there were other elements in it that he didn't want to be associated with. But um, you've got to eliminate cryptomnesia or false memory. And he did it by just focusing on children that didn't have any experiences. They hadn't watched any movies. These are children in rural villages in India, you know, to start with. And they hadn't watched any movies. They hadn't read any books. Nobody told them, you know, about the guy that uh, used to uh, run a video store, you know, or used to, you know, use some kind of milk machine or something. And he was shot in the back of the head. And, uh, you know, and and he had he lived here, and he had sister and brother and mother and everybody, and the kids remembering all this stuff. And not only that, the kid has a has a birthmark that corresponds to where the guy was shot. <laughs> you know, mm. this is Dr. Stevenson's research, and and anybody's interested in reincarnation, if they haven't studied Dr. Ian Stevenson, they need to study him. Um, but then, so so I I borrowed on his methods. You know, he what he wants is statements from children which could be verified, which they could not possibly have known, which then were verified after the statements were made. So you see how it is. They've got to be as many as as possible and as specific as possible. So we want specific idiosyncratic statements like the money was buried under the door. Okay. Or Mm -hmm. "I, I marked the letter H on the door, you know, or, you know, my wife was afraid of snakes or something specific. And the kid remembers it. He had no way of knowing. They go back. They verify it after his statements. And there's no perfect case because there's always some little caveat, some little, you know, wiggle room somewhere. But he's got like 250 really strong cases like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And when the time you get up to that point, you know, at, like Jeff Keene says, what would be proof to you? That's a quote from him, you know, right. and that's the question, what would be, how, you know, how high are you going to keep raising the bar until you say uncle? See, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, and, and that's out of our control. You know, we can't force somebody, you know, um, but we come pretty close. So I took that method and then there were people who had used what I, who had proven their own cases to what I call the legal standard, which is beyond a reasonable doubt and, and the two that I uh, patterned my research after was uh, Captain Robert Snow, who at one time was the head of homicide investigation for the city of Indianapolis. So this guy knew research. You know, he knew how to be rigorous because he, I mean, he's presenting cases for the court to try to win, you know, win a court case. And, and he knew his stuff. So he went in as a skeptic because somebody dared him. And he went under hypnosis and he remembered, he went into full immersion, which I never did. I wasn't a good hypnotic subject. I did use two hypnotic sessions. I wasn't really a good subject. But he he sat in the chair for half an hour feeling uncomfortable and all of a sudden, bang, he was in full immersion experiencing this past life. I think he experienced three. One of them he was able to prove. Twenty, I think it was 28 points finally that matched because he found the guy's diaries after he'd had this experience. He was trying to disprove it. And by gosh, all of those, all of those comments that he made that could be verified were all verified in the diary. See, so you know he had to, he had to, because he's a rigorous guy. He admitted I, I was wrong. It was, it was real. You know. So that's the first one. The second one is a woman named Angela Grubbs, who I discovered, I think through Carol Bowman's forum, if I'm not mistaken. Carol Bowman's another leading figure in this, in this uh, field. And she happened to be in Atlanta where I was, and I uh, videotaped an interview with her. And she was, uh, and I believe is, a research attorney, and she is professionally trained to uh, to research, you know, legal cases, and she researched her own past life memories in the same way, and she proved it also. You know, this was some a woman that lived in the early 1900s, if I remember correctly. She has a book out as well. So I took these are professional researchers, you know, plus Dr. Stevenson, who is a, a psychiatrist. Um, I took their methods and applied it to my own case. And uh, so now we get into what I did. This is easy because I'm researching my own case. So how do you do that? So what I do is I write down and document and emailed, because I had somebody helping me, everything that I could possibly remember, every reaction that I had, every feeling I had, every impression I had, I documented it with a date. And then I started digging into the history and exposing myself and being exposed to elements of Matthew Franklin Whittier's life. So I'll give an example. Um, I knew that he had contributed to a Boston paper called The Chronotype, which was a radical anti-slavery Boston paper. And this is the best of my memory is how this came about. So I ran across one of the editors, one of the early editors um, George Bradburn was the fellow's name, and he was an abolitionist and a Unitarian minister, and he had been hired as the editor of this paper for a certain, or an editor for a certain part of its life. And uh, I believe the picture's in profile, and when I looked at it on, online, on Google, I guess it was, and I had an experience, and the experience was that I knew him, but it was so, it was such a close friendship that I, in my mind's eye, I could see him turn and smile at me. You know, and I knew exactly what it would look like, uh, which told me that this must have been a really close friend. That's what I felt, a very close friend. So then I started researching him. I found that there was a memorial his wife had written after his death. And as I read down, I found that he was close friends with Matthew's brother. But that didn't do it for me because this was a close personal friend, not like a friend of my brother's, you know. So I thought well maybe I maybe I'd messed up here you know I'd overstated the case or something or I'm imagining these emotions you know or whatever which I don't think people do actually imagine emotions based on something they've heard I you know skeptics might call might pull that card out but I don't buy it you know this this was like I know this guy you know and I know when he'd smile like what I felt what came to me was like a warm hearth on a cold day his mm-hmm. smile—that's that's the phrase that popped into my mind. So then I read down further, and it turned out that they'd both worked for about 14 years in the same department of the Boston Custom House. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so that doesn't—that doesn't absolutely prove that they had that close of friendship, because you don't necessarily get that close to a coworker. But it means it's extremely likely, you know, plausible, entirely plausible. Right. So so that's just one that's just one example of, of how this thing would happen. I'd expose myself to something, I'd have a feeling, and then I'd go back and and see whether I could prove it in the historical record. What happened was, and why the book is so darn long, two reasons, one is that I kept finding stuff. The more I dug, the more I found, and it went on and on and on. I found stuff on eBay, I found references, and I'd go check the reference, and that would take me to a a bunch of his writing in a whole nother publication. You know, and then that'd be a little reference, and that would take me to another one, and it went on and on like that for years. <laughs> you know, it wasn't really fi- it wasn't really finished until like maybe a year ago. You know, uh-huh. so uh, and the other thing that made it long is that uh, sh- can I get into this, or do you want to? Yes, please. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The other thing that made it long was that, as I said, I found about 1,500 of Matthew's published works, most of which were in different newspapers, mostly literary newspapers, starting from age 14 up until. Well, up until he was in his late 60s. In 1875 was the last one I found. The first one I found was 1827. So he was a child prodigy and he started very young. His first publications were in something called the Boston, uh, the New England Galaxy in Boston. And he was like 14 and 15 when he was contributing to that thing and very sophisticated stuff. But anyway... He published almost everything anonymously, and he would pick up a pseudonym at the drop of a hat. Most people would take one pseudonym or maybe two, you know, and that was it. Uh, Matthew would constantly pick him up because he was in hiding. And the main reason he was in hiding, aside from his own personal personality, was that he was doing dangerous anti-slavery work, and he didn't dare let anybody figure out who he was, wow. you know. So he had to stay undercover and i found out a lot about he was basically an anti-slavery agent you know undercover reporter uh, and i found out a lot about that too but people would take his best anonymous work and claim it you know and then i when finding that out i would have to disprove that claim and that's hard
0: mm-hmm. you know e-
1: even today like there's a fellow that supposedly wrote the movie avatar which was he didn't get credit for you know and he went to court over it and he lost even though he had pretty strong evidence, you know? So now I'm trying to disprove things that happened 150 years ago, claims from 150 years ago. And it's really tough, but I did it, (laughs) you know? So, but here's where I lose credibility entirely. And, you know, if I didn't get any results, I have to honestly say I didn't get any results. If I get Astounding results. I have to honestly say, I got astounding results. I didn't start with this stuff. I wasn't really looking for it, you know. But here's what I said. I've got this down in my blog. In my blog on uh, May 31st, 2006, I added something that just had come to me. I said, "Here's something that might be useful as evidence." I have a strong feeling that I had some impact or influence on Charles Dickens' writing of A Christmas Carol as Matthew Whittier, but I have seen absolutely no evidence in that regard. That's 2006, before I even started researching it. I proved it, you know, to a, at least to the legal standard that Matthew and his first wife Abby, who was also a literary prodigy, wrote that original and not Charles Dickens. <laughs> you know, that's the first thing. The second thing is that. Uh, uh, I, I proved that Edgar Allan Poe didn't write The Raven. Matthew did after Abbey's death in 1841. So those two claims are so outrageous that I just lose credibility instantly when I report that. Mm-hmm. But but uh, the, the, the Charles Dickens one, I can prove that Dickens couldn't possibly have written it. I can come pretty close to proving that Matthew and Abbey were the original authors. When it comes to The Raven, I can flat out prove that Poe didn't write it.
0: And how do you prove that? I mean, did you find writings of it when you were searching and, you know, for all the stuff that he did have published or how how do you prove it?
1: What I found, first of all, I found that Poe couldn't possibly have written it. And that's that's a series of negative proofs, you know, which some people have questioned a few of these things. Uh, When. After Poe published that, the following – he published it in 1845, and in 1846, he wrote an essay for Graham's Magazine, Philadelphia, called the uh, – the, let's see, an essay on composition, I think it's called. Um, and he tried to explain how he wrote The Raven. And I don't know, can we say the BS word? I'll, I'll use BS. Um, uh, all professors know when you're BSing on an essay and they put, some of them will put a big red F on it. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what he was doing there. If you look at it and there's a few people that have commented on it, it's obviously and manifestly BS, you know, what he's, this, this is a grief poem and it's a poem, uh, with occult overtones about a grief crisis you know, the, the per, uh, a faith crisis, excuse me. It's a, it's a faith crisis poem of somebody who was sincerely grieving. And Poe's explanation was that it was an intellectual exercise. He just talks about style. You know, so, um, so that's, that's one side of it. But I can definitely prove that on multiple occasions, Matthew encoded protests in his writing uh, to Poe saying that he, you know, protesting that he'd stolen it. So that's what I can prove. I can prove that Matthew Franklin Whittier on numerous occasions charged Poe with having stolen it. What I don't have, of course, is Poe admitting it, which you're never going to get, you know. Right. But I can also show that there was a back and forth between them. There had to have been a back and forth in correspondence where Matthew would charge him and Poe would just blow him off, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have some examples. I'm not just going to stop there, (laughs) you know. Let me... uh, Okay, so there's many of these. So there's you know this is don't take this in isolation now. there's a bunch of them. But uh, first off, I found that Matthew was writing as the review editor for the port, for the New York Tribune, excuse me, when The Raven was published in New York. So Matthew was there on site. Matthew was, a reviewer for a major New York City newspaper at the same time that Poe was also a reviewer for a New York City newspaper. They were like a block away from each other, basically. Um, And then I had to get into that because that whole series is claimed for Margaret Fuller. Margaret Fuller was the literary editor of the New York Tribune during this period. She is credited with all of the reviews and essays and reports that Matthew wrote during that year and a half. So I had to take that away from Margaret Fuller before I could look at this evidence for Poe. and they're all they all know each other. I mean, Fuller and Poe were like friends and you know, so this is a, a tight little group here. Um, but Matthew had written with the star or asterisk, which is all of these pieces are signed with a big asterisk. Matthew had used that years ago. since 1831, 1832, he'd used the asterisk to, to write reviews. He used it all his life. and I figured out what it meant. Um, Abby was a mystic. She was an occultist and a mystic, and she believed that the stars were living, and she believed that that the stars at least represented souls in heaven, and she thought of herself and Matthew as twin stars. This is his soulmate, his first wife. So after she died, he would sign everything with the one star, the one remaining star. So that's what it meant to him. And this brings up the point that with these people that claim these these writings that are really Matthew's, Matthew has a deep backstory. And these guys don't have any backstory, <laughs> See? so that's one way you can tell that he's the real author and they aren't. Because you know, once I know his life, I know why he used these things, why he wrote them, what he was referring to. You know, they all have this deep backstory to them. So that's the deep backstory to the asterisk. It's it's his half of the star of the uh, soulmate couple. So so now. Um, uh, after Poe publishes The Raven under his name, it was actually published twice, right about at the same time. One of them was published under Blank Quarles. It's a reference to Francis Quarles, a, a poet from the 1600s, 17th century poet. A very deeply religious poet. There's no reason why Poe would identify with this guy because Poe wasn't religious. you know. And quarrels's poetry is all deeply faith-based. But Matthew was, and Abby was. So in before the Raven comes out, in one of Matthew's reviews, he praises a poem by a a poem by Francis Quarles, who's fairly obscure. So we but right before the Raven comes out, signed Quarles, we've got Matthew under the asterisk praising a poet, poem by Francis Quarles. So that's one little piece, okay. so so then, the other thing you have to know is that Matthew appears to have been the real author of La Fontaine's Fables translated into English, published the year Abby died in 1841. They came out under the name of Elijah Wright. Elijah Wright was the editor of the Boston Chronotype. They apparently were friends before then. What I remember is that this was Matthew's homework when Abby was teaching him French. Abby was Half French, French was spoken in their home. She was teach. She was his tutor, even though she was four years younger. She was teaching him French, excuse me, and she had him translate these fables as homework. And they decided to let Elijah Wright publish them. But Abby was very strong about not. She's a Victorian, you know. She didn't want anybody to to know that she had written it or helped write it. She and she encouraged Matthew to stay anonymous because that would. Uh, avoid the uh, f- pitfall of fame and egotism, see? So so uh, they published it anonymously, but Matthew knew these fables backwards and forwards. So now he reviews or is asked to review or forced to review by the editor Poe's compilation. Poe published The Raven and other poems, a compilation. Matthew knew damn well it wasn't his poem. He responded in a few ways, but one of the ways he responded was to say the following, and I'm taking it a little out of context. Matthew says, we have taken people at their word, and while rejoicing that women could bear neglect without feeling mean peak, and that authors rising above self-love could show candor about their works and magnanimously meet both justice and injustice, we have been rudely awakened from our dream and found that Chanticleer who crowed, crowed so bravely, showed himself at last but a dunghill fowl. Well, I know what Chanticleer is. Chanticleer's is a rooster, and it's a reference to this fable. Now, the, the fables of La Fontaine are Aesop's fables, translated in verse in French, and then Matthew translated them back into English. So here, it's, it's only two stanzas. Here's the poem. The cock and the pearl. A cock scratched up one day a pearl of purest ray, which to a jeweler he bore. I think it fine, he said, but yet a crumb of bread to me were worth a great deal more. That's the first stanza. Now check out the second stanza. So did a dunce inherit a manuscript of merit, which to a publisher he bore. Tis good, said he, I'm told, yet any coin of gold to me were worth a great deal more. The only way you know that is I know that Matthew puts these hidden references in there. He'll quote something, and you're supposed to look up the quote, okay? Or he'll mm-hmm. quote something and leave a gap in the middle, and you're supposed to find out what's in the gap. He did this over and over. I've got I don't know how many examples. This is the way he did his coded messages in his work. So what he did here was to make this passing reference to Chanticleer and the and the dunghill fowl, you know, meaning that that's Poe. And then you're supposed to look up the fable. And the second the second stanza of the fable says it specifically that he stole the manuscript and sold it. You know, but I've got 20. I counted them before, you know, a couple days ago in preparation for the interview. There's like 20 clues pointing to this. <laughs> You know and some of them are this that's the strongest yeah, It's
0: like the never ending scavenger hunt.
1: <laughs> yeah that that one yeah. I call myself. so let gun. me
0: ask you so 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 you did all of this research. like I said, it, it seems like the never ending scavenger hunt. Um, um, you know it led you on this adventure. And what's what do you think like the whole purpose is in this incarnation to have found out about this past life and how has it been helpful?
1: That's a great question. Um, first off, there's the personal side of it. Again, our our emotions don't don't disappear. They're still the same. So I have Matthew's emotions, and I wanted this thing straightened out, you know, because uh, I last count fifteen or sixteen different people claimed Matthew's work, and some of them got famous with it, just to, to varying degrees. You know, Dickens and Poe got outrageously famous, but other ones, you know, got fame to a certain level, um, and. I think that Matthew and Abby both had the Victorian idea that one should avoid fame because it leads to pride, spiritual pride, and that one is much better, and, and this was not just them. A lot of people in that era published anonymously, but most of them published with, like I said, just one suit in them, so you could figure out who it was, you know, but they didn't, and their stuff got stolen a lot, um, and I feel like he wanted to set that right because he realized it was a mistake. And here's why I feel it was a mistake. And it's kind of hard to explain. If you, well, first off, if you look into Charles Dickens' character, he was um, he was not a good person, <laughs> okay? Um, and the same with Poe. Poe, everybody knew he wasn't a good person, <laughs> you know? But Dickens, everybody thought he was wonderful, especially because of A Christmas Carol. Um, when you take a spiritual uh, a channeled work, an inspired work, um, and you attribute it to a scoundrel. It it uh, it does two things. First off, it it somehow or other it uh, reduces the spiritual value of the thing. Secondly, it makes people open to to anything the guy puts out. You know now because dickens wrote a christmas carol we'll just absorb anything he wrote you know as being of the same quality that opens people up to you know negative influences and likewise with poe if poe wrote the raven then we'll just swallow all this other stuff that's poisonous you know so it's not a good idea to let anybody else you know of lower spiritual vibration claim your work for that reason for another reason it's just wrong (laughs) you know so there's a you know there's a selfish part of it so that's That's that side of it. But this is the perfect storm as far as proving reincarnation because not too many years ago, you may have heard of the Leininger case or some of your listeners may be familiar with, I think it's James Leininger case. A little boy who remembered that he was a a World War II airplane pilot and he could Mm -hmm. prove it. You know, I mean, they they take him to the museum. He sees the plane. He knows what kind of Corsair that he used to fly. And his mom, his mommy says, uh, "Oh, you know, James, look at the uh, the bombs." He says, "That's not a bomb, mommy. That's a drop tank." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't want a drop tank. But he knew. Right. You know what I'm saying? He proved it on a number of points. So, but that came out. It came out. Um, I forget the venue. It came out, in, but it was like mainstream television. And then it disappeared. People forgot about it. Well, that's the way things are nowadays. Any outrageous thing can show up and two days later it's gone. Like, you know, the world is like big uh, science fiction entertainment now. Nobody believes anything anymore, you know, or cares. But this case is different because if it is really proven that Matthew Franklin Whittier and his wife was really the co-authors of A Christmas Carol, and if it is proven that Matthew Franklin Whittier was the real author of The Raven, the thing won't go away. And it cannot be separated from reincarnation proof. I, it's so integra- integral, and I'm first. If anybody else claims this stuff, I'm first, and I'll show up and I say, "Wait a minute! I have this in my book. I've been saying this for ten years." You know, so they might be able to ignore me, but it's not going to be easy. That means that if this, this is this is an earth-shaking, you know, eight point five magnitude earthquake in the literary world, if not anywhere else. You know, these two things, because there have been people that have have spent their whole careers, you know, believing that, you know, and studying Dickens and studying Poe and believing these things. If that gets blown, reincarnation comes in with it and reincarnation cannot be kicked out. So I feel like all of that was planned before I came in and I'm the front man, you know, Right. you know, so that's another significance of it.
0: Do you also find um you know, with your findings of this evidence, are you a little more emotionally settled in this lifetime, even though there's still work to be done to really, um, you know, have people, I guess, take your research. And I don't know, I don't want to say that people aren't believing it per se. But, you know, if I'm thinking about what is the benefit of going through all of this work for this incarnation, if, We are always operating, you know, with our emotions from past life emotions. Was there an emotion that was healed in this lifetime with you discovering this, uh, making, you know, these announcements and uncovering this information?
1: Well, you know, we're into the the, just to stick with the personal side of it. It's difficult. It's unsettling. Um, It's emotionally difficult because things that I had put to rest, you know, a century and a half ago are now back. (laughs) You know, uh, awoken. You know, Mm -hmm. you you're 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 awakening. You know, dragons that might have been better left asleep. Um, So I find myself very frustrated at the lack of reaction to my work. But I've I've got all of Matthew's emotions about his work being neglected. You know, about him being neglected also. See, so not only am I am I you know pissed about what's going on now. I'm pissed about what happened before. So you know, it's not. It's I wouldn't necessarily recommend this for everybody. You know, so that's that side of it. Um, But I did gain a great deal of insight about myself, you know, things that I didn't understand about my childhood, what I was struggling with in my childhood, what I, you know, what I was struggling with as a young man and, you know, patterns. I see the patterns very clearly now that now it all makes sense. So that side of it has been a great help. But in terms of uh, uh, being settled or, or calmed down or anything, no, it's been opposite.
0: Okay. Well, I'd like you to give our listeners um, your website and also where they can find your ebook, so they have the opportunity to take this journey with you and to go a little bit more um, into the depth of the research that you've done.
1: Sure. The website is www.ial.com. Dot goldthread.com like a needle and thread g-o-l-d-t-h-r-e-a-d.com the books are all listed right up at the top so they're easy to access they're, they're on amazon.com and they're also on my own uh, personal online store so uh, very easy to find and then if you scroll down into the text you'll find the link for the documentary as well
0: Wonderful. And if our listeners um, start to go into their own search, and if they have any questions, uh, are you open to answering any questions by email?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm fine with that. There's also, I don't have the URL in front of me, but if you go uh, go to my website and look for the articles page, there's a link to the articles page. There is up near the top, an article about my method. And that will give you lots of ideas on how you could start your own search. And there's certain things not to do. I mean, you want to get all of your memories and impressions down, dated, and even preserved with some with some other, you know, uh, reliable person if at all possible, uh, before you start researching. Because if yeah. you start finding rec- if you start finding answers before you've documented that you had the memory before that, then you, what do you? You can prove it to yourself. Here's the thing that you can prove to yourself. But then, if you want to prove it to anybody else, you've got to use a method like this.
0: Right, exactly. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. This was a really incredible interview. Very, very interesting. I'm sure a lot of our listeners, including myself, want to try this method now and uh, maybe delving a little bit more into our own past lives with some caution. you know Thanks, just hearing yeah. about as you said that it can uh, it can still bring up some stuff or uh, allow those old emotions to continue to resurface but it definitely yeah. sounds like it was an amazing you know journey and still continues to be so thank you so much for being a guest on the path 11 podcast thank you Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four day four-day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out of body experiences and life changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today, and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people. Uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today.